0: We're always delighted when we have our old friends as guests, and we don't really invite anybody to our podcast who is not someone we respect and admire. But today, we have someone who is especially dear to us and whose work we have admired for a long time, and that is Mark's colleague, John Coyle. There there are few other people in the academy about whose work I can say, it's the kind of work I'm happy to sit down with a glass of scotch and just really enjoy. And so I am very grateful to John for his many articles that I've enjoyed because it makes me feel like I really like academic work. And much of the academic work I read does not give me that feeling. Instead, I, I would rather just close it and watch some crappy show on netflix which which is which is very bad so john uh welcome to our podcast
1: thank you so much i'm a long-time listener and great admirer and um and delighted to be here so yeah.
0: the question we are hoping to ask you about actually we have a lot of questions but there there is a big broad rubric that these questions fall under and that is Having to do with consent to jurisdiction clauses. And to provide some background, these are the clauses that are typically referred to as boilerplate. And I, I had always thought of as of boilerplate clauses as clauses that were identical in wording, because of that, that's just what it sounds like. And Often colloquially, that's the term that is used. But lawyers, uh, veteran lawyers, tell me that that's not really what the term means in industry parlance. Rather, it's the sort of legal terms that, that are at the back of the document and that only the lawyers focus on, and particularly the litigators focus on. Now, in that mass of boilerplate comes the submission to jurisdiction term that I have typically paid the least amount of attention to in the world of sovereign bonds that Mark and I spend a lot of our time on. But the Russian default has forced us to think about these. And here is the context that I want to begin with, the Russian sovereign bonds, and I'm not familiar with any other sovereign bonds that have similar language, explicitly say that the sovereign is not submitting to jurisdiction anywhere. Now, I I was a terrible student of civil procedure and I, I still don't understand all of that in rem and in personam and it just gives me nightmares. So the Russian bonds have a particularly weird provision with respect to jurisdiction that I want to ask you about. They say that the sovereign does not submit to jurisdiction anywhere and to put it bluntly what the hell does this mean does it mean that russia cannot be sued anywhere what could possibly be the implication of this clause or does it mean that russia can be sued everywhere have you ever
1: seen anything like this like what's going on john yeah so um so here's how i think about these consented jurisdiction clauses um you may be familiar with the term snowplow parent. Um, those are the parents who, you know, run ahead of their children, removing all obstacles so that nothing unpleasant or bad ever happens to them. And I think these consented jurisdiction clauses are essentially the boilerplate equivalent of a snowplow parent, right? They're, they're snowplow provisions. And what they do is they essentially make it really easy to um, bring a lawsuit against the sovereign um, in the court named in the clause. So for example, if you have a consent to jurisdiction clause choosing the courts, state and federal courts of New York, um, that's gonna make it really easy to sue the sovereign there because the clause is gonna do a number of things. It's gonna um, operate as a consent to personal jurisdiction clause. It's gonna operate as a, um, you can't argue that the venue is improper. You can't argue that um, forum non-convenience would apply. This, contra- this case should be heard somewhere else. And maybe this is debatable, it may also function as a waiver of sovereign immunity. Uh, Again, that's you know, we can talk about that, but that may be one of the purposes of these clauses. So when you have one of these things and you want to sue the sovereign in New York, all of these procedural obstacles that would ordinarily you'd have to sort of surmount are all cleared away. The clause kind of does the work for you. So when Russia says it's not going to consent to jurisdiction anywhere. That doesn't mean you can't sue it anywhere else. It just means if you want to sue it somewhere, (laughs) you're gonna have to prove there's personal jurisdiction. You have to prove that venue is proper. You have to prove that forum non-convenience doesn't apply. And depending on the state of the sovereign immunity waiver, you may have to establish that Russia has somehow waived its sovereign immunity. So I think the significance of these clauses isn't to say Russia is immune from suit everywhere Else Or everywhere, not Russia, I guess. It's just to say that if you want to sue them somewhere else, Russia is putting you on notice. It's going to be a lot of work. (laughs) And it's going to be a lot more work than it would be if there were one of these consented jurisdiction clauses naming a place where it'd be relatively easy to bring a lawsuit as against Russia.
0: So, John, let me follow up before um, Mark gets into the conversation. I like to preempt him from getting into the conversation. So I ask all of the stuff that I want to. And so maybe today we're just not going to let ask, let Mark ask any questions since there's so much I want to ask. But th- this Russian clause, uh, it gives me the heebie-jeebies. Uh, and let me tell you why. And in some ways this is a different spin on this. So Russia has not submitted to jurisdiction anywhere in its contract. Now, there are issues that have arisen because of different uh, and other aspects of the Russian bonds having to do with a a clause that allows, arguably allows Russia to pay in rubles and, With this clause, there are some interpretive questions about whether or not the conditions in question allow Russia to make payment in rubles, and who would determine the exchange rate at which it calculates how many rubles it will pay. Now, in the absence of a submission to jurisdiction clause, or a clause that says this is where the litigation will happen can russia just go to the local court at the in the basement of the kremlin and say dear mr henchman of putin please tell us whether we are allowed to pay in rubles and what the exchange rate is and then the local judge will say well what would you like it to be and that will be the end of uh, the resolution i mean that This lack of a submission to jurisdiction seems to mean, for someone who doesn't understand any civil procedure, that Russia can go wherever it wants uh, and bring a claim and and bring an action. And then the, the implications of that action would reverberate for all actions all over the world.
1: Yeah, so I think that um, Russia, um, for better or worse, always has the power to go to its home courts and ask its home courts to do whatever it wants. And um, that's true regardless of whether there's a submission to jurisdiction clause in the, in the agreement or not. Um, similarly, um, again, the submission to jurisdiction clause, it really only functions or operates when Russia is being named as a defendant, really. I mean, if, if Russia wants to act as a plaintiff, and go around the world and, and bring lawsuits against its investors or against whomever it wants. Um, this clause isn't really gonna you know do much. Um, so I guess it's not really limiting in there either. Um so it, I guess- it, I'm, I'm sorry, All right. let, let me yeah. let me um
0: interrupt because I this this part puzzles me. Yeah. So when if- is my turn? Okay, okay, fine. But then, can I put out my question and then you guys can stomp on me? But okay, I'm gonna go on. It, this so this is a contract so the investors and the sovereign are agreeing that the sovereign is submitting to jurisdiction in x place and russia has not submitted anywhere but like let's look at a generic clause so that the parties are agreeing we that the side that is most likely to be sued which is the sovereign is submitting to jurisdiction in one place. Uh, surely it would come as a big shock to investors that Russia can go wherever it wants to bring a action against the investors. That, that just seems
1: completely implausible, but that's what you just said. And yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> again, it may be implausible. It may not be done very often. I mean, again, as you say, the sovereigns are usually not the plaintiffs um, in these sovereign um, debt disputes. But again, I think that you know if the sovereigns want a forum shop and travel around the world, so long as they can establish personal jurisdiction over their investors there and you know satisfy the other procedural requirements, they can do that. Um, and that's true, again, regardless of whether there's a consented jurisdiction clause or not. Um, and again, and the investors can still sue Russia, right? There's nothing in the clause that keeps them from suing Russia. It just makes it a lot harder because again, Russia hasn't sort of agreed to waive all these procedural objections that would ordinarily kick in um, when they're sued as a sovereign um, somewhere that's not in Russia. Um, but I'm kind of curious to hear what Mark has to say about this. Mark, what do you think?
2: I think that there are a variety of things here that are introducing confusion that don't that aren't necessarily uh, as problematic as Me Too think. So may, can I reframe things a little bit? And then John, you can just tell me if I'm doing it sensibly or not sensibly. So there's nothing, there's no clause in these Russian bonds. There's a provision in the prospectus that notifies investors of the lack of a submission to jurisdiction clause in the bond contract. So it's like standard civ pro. So there's nothing in the contract that says anything about where litigation is going to happen. It's like standard Civ Pro that you can go lots of places then, wherever you can find personal jurisdiction. And if you're a sovereign and you have some ability to set the rules, that includes your own courts. So sure, Russia could sue investors and Russian courts could render judgments against investors. And none of that matters a a damn bit unless courts outside of Russia will recognize that judgment, for instance, by dismissing a, a New York court... Um, dismissing an investor's lawsuit against Russia on the ground that the issues in that lawsuit had already been adjudicated against the investor in Russia. And at least in the U.S., courts are not going to recognize the judgment of a court that did not have personal jurisdiction over the investor. And so in the absence of a clause in which the investor submits to jurisdiction in Russia, The only way this could be a risk to investors is if they had really significant contacts with Russia, like maybe if they set up a bank account there to receive payments or, you know, some other basis for establishing personal jurisdiction. But if not, you know, Russia can do whatever it wants and U.S. courts are just going to ignore it. Isn't that basically the lay of the land in the in the absence of a submission to jurisdiction clause that binds the investor?
1: I mean, that all sounds right to me. Sure. Yeah. I mean, if if the investors are subject to personal jurisdiction in Russia, Russia can sue them there. But my guess is that a lot of these investors aren't. Um, and so they'll be safe from jurisdiction in Russia, which again limits Russia's ability to, you know, handpick a court, handpick a judge, and then engineer a judgment that you know, they would want other countries to enforce. If there's no personal jurisdiction, those other countries' courts just aren't going to enforce the uh, resulting Russian judgment.
2: So what about, and, and now I think, um, I know one of the the sort of subtexts we've been building to is that MeToo in particular had brought to my attention, and I think your attention, some, there's a lot of variability in the boilerplate that does exist in submission to jurisdiction clauses. And we kind of wanted to start with Russia to sort of tee up the I'm going to call it like the background risk to investors. And the, the maybe a better example even would be that Russia right now basically can't pay anyone who's holding a dollar bond, not in accordance with the terms of the bonds. Um, because it can't it doesn't have access to to the payment mechanism it needs to transfer dollars. So, you know, one potential doctrine it could invoke is that um it is impracticable or impossible for it to make payment. and so therefore its payment obligations ought to be suspended. And you can imagine how if an investor were to sue Russia somewhere like in the UK, you know, in principle, Russia could defend the lawsuit on that basis there. But you know, in principle, it could also file its own lawsuit, maybe seeking a declaratory judgment or something in Russia you know seeking a declaration that it was excused from paying anybody um and i think what we're saying is that because investors are probably not subject to personal jurisdiction in russia it d- there'd be little points to russia doing that I- investors wouldn't be bound but some of these submission to jurisdiction clauses like w- what kind of submission to jurisdiction clause would create risks for the investor does that make sense yeah. Like, can, can the investor make itself worse off by buying a bond that has a submission to jurisdiction clause?
1: I, I think the answer is yes. I think it depends on the way that the clause is drafted. But um, obviously, most of the clauses, I think, are essentially unilateral consent to jurisdiction clauses where the sovereign, but not the investors. Just the sovereign is consenting to jurisdiction in New York, say, or England. Um But there are some that are are mutual where both parties are consenting to jurisdiction in the courts of a particular place and if (laughs) the courts named in that clause are the sovereign's own home courts well um one of the effects of the consent to jurisdiction clause you essentially waive your objection to personal jurisdiction so um if the investors have given that up and the sovereign decides to sue them in the sovereign's own home courts they would have personal jurisdiction over those investors and they could potentially um, engineer a judgment that would be given some recognition and effect in courts of other countries, which would perhaps give the sovereign a leg up in any litigation arising out of this sovereign debt.
2: Okay. So just to, just to, Sort of make sure all of this is clear right the 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 concern then for investors is that that Russian there is a greater chance that that Russian judgment would then be recognized by a court in the us or the UK precisely because a badly drafted clause might subject the investor to jurisdiction in a place that it never really
0: wanted to be sued
1: exactly that's exactly okay. right. yep
0: Okay, we have I I have so many more questions uh, about this, but Liana will be very unhappy with us if we do not keep on time and our podcast only functions because of Liana. So, we will go to a break and then we'll continue with this fascinating topic. So I know we ended the last part of the podcast by my saying we were gonna move beyond Russia, but I just can't move beyond Russia. So here's the question. I am really puzzled about the part of the conversation we had where John, you and Mark were talking about how you could get personal jurisdiction over an investor if that investor is receiving money in some bank account in Russia has like, you know, he's going to parties in Russia or whatever they have to do. I mean, that, that, that makes sense in a instrument where it's one creditor and one borrower, but here you have these instruments that have hundreds of thousands of investors in a single instrument. How the hell does it even work where some investors who are in Russia and receiving money in a Russian bank account would be subject to jurisdiction there? So like if a local Russian court gives a judgment there, that that investor is bound by it. Whereas the investor in the US who doesn't get the money, in Russia is not bound by it. It, it, This seems to be an unworkable system. And so it it makes me wonder like, why the hell is the clause drafted in a way in which people will have different rights? These are supposed to be traded instruments where they're all supposed to be fungible. They're all supposed to have the same price. But to just babble on for a little bit longer, in the context of the Russian sanctions, some investors, some Western investors, we think are probably accepting money in ruble accounts that Russia has set up for them. They're not objecting to it. Now, if I'm just an innocent investor and I'm being screwed by the sanctions, but I I allowed the Russian government or the central bank or whatever to set up a ruble account for me, have I now essentially consented to jurisdiction, even though the only reason that I'm accepting the money there is because they were sanctions to get this like so inadvertently now I'm subject to all of the decisions of a local Russian court about my rights and the only way I can stop myself from being Subject to their determination, their legal determinations is by not accepting my money? I I hope that wasn't unclear, but it's to both you and Mark.
1: So let me start by tackling the the possibility that there would be multiple lawsuits against the sovereign proceeding in multiple jurisdictions at the same time. Um, So I would say this is always a risk um, unless the um, contracting question contains an exclusive form selection clause, one that essentially says, you know, all this is going to be heard in the courts of England and nowhere else. And that essentially means that all the litigants, both the investors against the sovereign and the sovereign against the investors, you know, depending on how the clause is set up, would all have to go to England to figure it all out. And that would make things nice and simple. But again, my sense is that this is not how most consented jurisdiction clauses and sovereign debt um, contracts are drafted, that they're usually non-exclusive which means the sovereign may consent yes to England or yes to New York, but that doesn't mean you can't sue the sovereign somewhere else. So I think the problem you've identified is a real problem, right? We might have multiple lawsuits proceeding across multiple countries involving basically the same facts and the same contract and the same sovereign. But I think that problem pretty much always exists unless you have an exclusive form selection clause, which for whatever reason, and I think the two of you are probably better positioned to explain than I am why that is, this is not, normally done um, when people are preparing these sovereign debt contracts?
2: So I think the second, the, just the second part of Me Too's question, which I'm going to, I'm going to restate, because I think uh, it's um, interesting and worth emphasizing, um, it might actually be not be that important, but it, it's still worth talking about. So there, there, there appear to be some investors who are actually, they want to be paid in rubles, they're willing to set up an account uh, in Russia as necessary to receive their rubles. And so um, the reason I think the question might be less important than it seems is that as I understand it, they're being made to sign sort of waivers in connection with receiving the rubles, like acknowledging that receiving them fully satisfies any obligation Russia might have to them. So that that agreement that they have to sign probably, uh, or at least uh, is likely to bind them anywhere in the world uh, these issues were to come up. But leaving that aside, one of the things those investors ought to be thinking about, if I'm understanding this right, is whether by setting up the account in Russia, they might be establishing deep enough contacts with Russia that they would be also submitting to the risk that they might be hauled into Russian courts as defendants by the Russian government. Uh, uh, in some lawsuit they didn't anticipate. So that's a a material thing for them to be thinking about, right?
1: I mean, I think so, yes. I guess, what what would be the cause of action, though? Because I guess I'm having a hard time seeing, I guess, the sovereign would sue the investors. But my understanding of these contracts, all all the investors have to do is essentially pony up the money on the front end. So the sovereign has the money. I guess, what would be the cause of action as against the investors by the sovereign down the road, I guess, what have the investors done that the sovereign now has a right to to sue them for?
2: So I think, I mean, this is an important question. The, The two things that leap to mind are that notwithstanding these agreements that they're signing, sort of acknowledging that these payments discharge Russia's obligations, many of them might disagree that Russia has the right to pay them in rubles. They might be willing to accept rubles for now, but want to sort of stand on their rights in terms of their ability to receive dollars. The other might be that the Russian government, depending on future developments, could at least potentially raise some defenses to having to pay at all, including defenses that stem from the the inability to access dollars because of the sanctions. So, you know, an investor might be happy to take rubles for now, but if they want dollars in the future at least conceivably, the Russian government could file a, a, the equivalent of a declaratory judgment action saying, in effect, we're excused from having to pay dollars. I, again, I don't think these are super important risks, but if I'm understanding the rules correctly, an investor who chose to accept payment in Russia would also be running a greater risk that Russian courts might decide these issues if they ever came up.
0: And let let me just add in my two cents on this, because Mark's question made me think about this. You know, let's let's imagine a scenario where Mr. Putin is uh, removed from office. And uh, the and the subsequent Russian government having to pay large amounts in reparations uh, for the damage that it has done to Ukraine and the rest of the world has this is has decided that it wants to uh, disavow any responsibility for anything that Mr. Putin has done, and so they want to go to a court and uh, have the court declare that the debts that were incurred by Putin and his henchmen are invalid. Now, to the extent they can do that in a Russian court that no longer is sympathetic to Mr. Putin, that seems like a pretty big power. But I, I don't know, Mark, I, I maybe I inappropriately piggybacked on your question and tell me if this is not a continuation of the question, but this invalidity question is one that sovereigns always, uh, I mean, the the risk of a sovereign going into court after an old government has been thrown out is a significant one in this context in particular.
1: Let me kind of jump in with a question, I guess, for you guys. I mean, are there any historical examples where sovereigns have done this? I mean, have they gone to their own courts and sought the equivalent of a declaratory judgment um, in the past, right? And if it has happened in the past, I guess, what happened in those cases, and if it hasn't happened in the past, I guess do you have any ideas or hypotheses as to why they haven't used this technique up until now? So-, so, I mean
2: there there are some there are some sort of half examples where countries trying to establish that the the loans were incurred by a prior government were in fact illegitimate have at least. Filed proceedings in domestic courts to establish that fact, not necessarily naming investors, um, but simply to establish the legal principle as a matter of domestic law. So, in Mozambique, uh, did something similar? There was a, a ruling by the Supreme Court about the validity of some bonds issued by Mozambique. John, your question is exactly one I've always, I've always sort of wondered, but I think in the normal case, the answer would go something like this. There's two worlds of instruments out there. There's the domestic debt world, which is subject to the sovereign's local law. And we kind of ignore that world because um, you know, the sovereign gets to set the rules. And then there's the, the international debt that's governed by foreign law. And here, you could imagine a country filing a lawsuit in its own courts uh seeking to kind of get a get a leg up. There's there's no reason a court in Venezuela say can't issue a ruling under New York law about whether uh a, a, a debt is is valid or invalid. I think the reason it hasn't happened is cuz in the typical international bond all the payment mechanisms are external to the issuing government. So my guess is that countries know that they could try doing this, but the judgments would not be respected abroad. And so they they wouldn't get anything from it. And then the unique thing about the Russian scenario is you've got this subset of investors who are subjecting themselves, at least arguably, to the jurisdiction of those very domestic courts, even though they're holding international bonds. Me too, I don't know. You can you can tell me if that's not the right way to frame it. But like that, I think, is what makes this truly unique.
0: I, I think that, that you framed it exactly right. All, all that I will add is that, in some ways, my interest in these clauses stems from conversations starting in the Russian context where because of Russia's lack of submission to jurisdiction, I asked some senior lawyers, you know, does the lack of submission to jurisdiction mean that Russia can just bring suit in Russia for a declaration? And then I asked them, like, you know, would this ever happen? What I heard back was, that periodically there have been concerns that a sovereign will file an action in a local court ask asking that local court to say that the bonds are not valid, the invalidity point that Mark raised. But the other thing I heard that now just completely puzzles me uh, is that this... The senior lawyers, one in particular, said, and because of that, the clauses are drafted so that only the investor can choose the court in which the lawsuit uh, happens. And then I read the clauses and it it says, you know, the sovereign submits to the jurisdiction, uh, either exclusive jurisdiction of the courts of England or New York or the the exclusive jurisdiction in New York, but they can also sue in Mexico or Venezuela or something like that, so two courts. But as you have pointed out, that clause on its face does not actually say that the sovereign can't file suit wherever the hell it wants, so um, I, you know, let it just seems like what people think the clauses are saying is somewhat upside down from what they're actually
1: saying.
0: but maybe this was just an idiosyncrasy of what uh, this lawyer told me but it, it I, I'm I'm convinced that that is not the case that the, these are just clauses people have not paid that attention to because this concern about the invalidity of the bond is one that is always there for government debt. Since the 1800s, bondholders have been screwed when, when issuers can say this is a completely invalid bond.
1: I mean, I think that these clauses really only bind the, the sovereigns as plaintiffs when they're exclusive. You know, If it really says it has to be in London and nowhere else, um, and Russia wants to be a plaintiff, well, it can sue wherever it wants to, I guess even in Russia, and at least in principle, the court will say, we're sorry, we would love to hear your case, but you agreed to litigate this exclusively in England and therefore off to England you go. So I think that this exclusivity piece is really important. Um, and again, if it's not exclusive, if it's a non-exclusive clause, it doesn't restrict your ability as a plaintiff at all. You, know, you can go wherever you wanna go as a plaintiff and the clause only really operates when the sovereign or guess, whoever is bound by the clause is named as a defendant. And if there's a consent to jurisdiction clause and you're a defendant well you've waived a lot of important um procedural rights you may have to object to this court hearing the case but um again if it's exclusive it binds the plaintiff if it's non-exclusive it makes it easier to sue the defendants in certain places but it certainly doesn't preclude you from suing them somewhere else so um to the extent that these lawyers seem to be uh <laughs> operating under a misapprehension it may be that they just um, haven't really thought through the exact, the, the variations, I guess, between the language in these clauses and how they work, and how those variations may then inform sort of litigation strategy. Because one thing that, I mean, I've, I've interviewed a bunch of lawyers for other projects, and one thing that I've always been struck by, and I know that you, you two have written about this as well, is just that there's, there's this transmission belt that doesn't happen between the litigators and the drafters, and that the drafters are kind of drafting in one world, and the litigators are litigating in a different world. And we'd like to think that these two groups talk to each other and explain things to each other so they can coordinate. But um again, in my experience, that doesn't always happen. And that may explain some of the disconnect you're seeing when you're talking to these to these lawyers. So, John, you've
2: you've looked at more choice of forum and choice of law clauses than probably anybody alive. And I I wanna I think I'm really restating, but slightly differently. I think accurately, though, kind of the the problem me too is struggling with. Um, so it seems to me that the issue here, at least from an investor's perspective, is the investor wants choice when they're acting as a plaintiff. That is to say, they don't want the contract to identify an exclusive forum. Because if I'm a German holder of a a New York law-governed bond, and I think I can get jurisdiction over the issuer of that bond in Germany, I might like to have that option, even though the submission to jurisdiction clause in the contract uh, provides for New York. Like When I'm the plaintiff, I want as many choices as possible. But I also want to avoid being hauled as a defendant into court anywhere. So what I want is like one way exclusivity, right? I want the sovereign, any litigation brought by the sovereign channeled into a particular court, but then I want my, um, my choices to be unconstrained when I'm acting as plaintiff. What, what is, have you seen clauses like that? What do they look like? Would they be common? Like uh, just sort of, is that an unusual thing?
1: So it's it's a, it's a rare thing, but it's not unheard of. Um, I have seen clauses like that, that are essentially exclusive for one party only and the other party can do what they want. Um, so there's two, in, in most of the contracts that I've looked at are not international sort of sovereign debt contracts. They're more just generic business, commercial, consumer employment agreements here in the United States. And so I can say that in the United States, um, In the business-to-business context, you do see these clauses. You sometimes see them in lending agreements between banks and companies, um, where the bank essentially says, um, you have to sue us in our home jurisdiction, but we can sue you wherever we want to, things like that. Um, Occasionally see them in insurance contracts. Um, So you see these and they're not unheard of, although they are slightly uncommon, because as you might imagine, the people on the receiving end of these don't like having their choices constrained in this way, so they push back. And they only end up getting, I think, uh, stuck with these when they really don't have any leverage at all. Um, the other wrinkle, though, is that U.S. courts have sort of um, mixed views about these things. I guess in the business-to-business context, they're happy to enforce them, um, notwithstanding the asymmetry and kind of the imbalance. Um, once you move into sort of consumer contracts, employment contracts, they start to push back a bit more, and I think that that discourages um, companies and, and employers from writing these into their contracts in the first place. So. Um, That all that being said though, I mean, in the sovereign debt world, these are definitely sophisticated actors who are perfectly capable of taking care of themselves. So there's no principled reason why you couldn't draft a clause, Mark, along the lines you discussed. Um, It just doesn't seem like that happens very often.
2: Yeah, I've never, I don't think I've ever seen one in the, at least in the sovereign context. Um, Maybe to, to sort of close us out, if I can ask one more sort of drafting, type question or or contract design type question so just to kind of reiterate if if there's no submission to jurisdiction clause at all or even if there's sort of a standard submission to jurisdiction clause that binds the sovereign only there's always some non-zero risk that the sovereign could sue the investor somewhere that the investor doesn't like but that's a pretty low risk because in general, most investors would have no contacts with that forum, and the judgment would not likely be respected abroad. So, it seems like the the risk a submission to jurisdiction clause might pose for an investor is that it might be viewed as non exclusive, rather than exclusive, and that it, it that would not be necessarily a problem if it named only a, a creditor-friendly jurisdiction like New York, but some of these clauses name the sovereign's own courts too. And if those were interpreted to be non-exclusive, then an investor might be screwed. So like, what does a non-exclusive clause look like? like? It, are there cases where language where maybe the intent was not to create a non-exclusive clause, but courts have found it to be non-exclusive. Like, like, wh- where is th- where does the risk lie there?
1: So this is actually a really interesting drafting point. So um, the rule in the United States, as a matter of interpretive practice, is that um, form selection clauses are presumptively non-exclusive, Unless the clause contains what we call language of exclusivity. Okay, and that can be like words like exclusive or only or sole or sort of some, something signaling that you wanted to be here and nowhere else. Um, the rule in Europe is different. Um, <laughs> at least the rule for some contracts in Europe and for a lot of contracts in Europe is that um, form selection clauses are presumptively exclusive. Um, and you have to take them out of exclusivity by indicating you didn't want them to be that. Um, So one of the tricks in in all of this is to realize that different parts of the world have different rules about this, so that if your clause is ambiguous in any way, you might get one outcome under US law and a different outcome under the law of the European Union, um, which is kind of wacky and wild, but um, this is sort of the world we live in. (laughs) So I think that obviously the easiest way to solve this problem is just to say, I have the word exclusive in in your clause and boom, problem is solved. Um, and that often happens, but it doesn't always happen. And when it doesn't happen, again, it just only does so much. You know, it's yes, it's consent to jurisdiction. Yes, these obstacles to suing them go away in this place. But other than that, um, they really can go anywhere they want to and, and do whatever they want.
2: Well, thank you. We have we had a, like a long list of probably 30 questions about specific variations of of submission to jurisdiction clauses we were going to ask you, like, what about this one? What about this one? But... Um, since your office is down the hall from mine, I can just wander down to ask you, and uh, and maybe we can uh, we can have another episode talking about them uh, talking about them too. But John, thank you, thank you so much for for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Um, this is so interesting, and thanks. For having-